Well, you have joined us, if you're new here, you have joined us in a year-long study of the book of Romans. And we've been reading through this letter that was inspired by the Holy Spirit, written by the Apostle Paul and sent to the early church in Rome uh, because this letter, inspired by the, work, by the Spirit of God, holds within it incredible truth and instruction for believers seeking to live out the gospel in their lives, right? This was written to a group of people who are in an incredibly influential city, right? Rome was the seat of the Roman Empire back when it was just blowing and going. And so from that city, from that capital, from that region, there was so much potential for people to take the gospel forth to the ends of the earth, to fulfill that great commission, right? To go to not just the neighborhood, not just to the city, but to go to the ends of the earth. That could happen from Rome. And so when the apostle Paul is writing to them, he is making sure, he is explicitly clear, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, as we've been studying this, hopefully we have seen that there is this theme, there is this thread of why the gospel is such good news, of why this good news of Jesus Christ is in fact the best news that we could ever hope to accept, that we could ever hope to experience, the best news we could ever hope to proclaim. And so this morning we're in Romans chapter eight. We're reading the first 11 verses. If you have your Bible, I'd encourage you to turn there or go there on your phone. We'll also have the verses on the screen. But in Romans chapter eight, verses one through 11, Paul is essentially, he's, he's making a turn from chapter seven. If you were with us last week, you know that in Romans chapter seven, Paul ends with really this, this detailed account of how even as followers of Jesus Christ, even as people who have been justified, right? Remember, declared righteous in the eyes of God, not by our work, not by our ability, not by our accomplishment, but instead by the work of the Holy Spirit, the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, those of us who have put our faith in him that have been declared righteous, even for us, sin is still present, right? This world is still broken. Temptation still hits us. And so in the end of chapter seven, Paul talks about how he, he is not immune, that he, even he feels this, this, this pull, this desire to do what he knows he shouldn't, to not do what he knows he should. And he ends chapter seven almost with this cry for help saying, who will deliver me? Who could ever deliver me from this body of death? And in Romans chapter eight, he answers that question. And he begins to describe in Romans 8, verses 1 through 11, how the Lord has provided us with the tools and the resources we need in order to live a life that's glorifying to him and to live a life where we are, in fact, displaying and demonstrating the salvation that we've received by grace through faith in Christ. And yet the, the, the issue, I think the problem that we often struggle with is so many times we could be handed all the right resources. We can have all the right tools in our tool belt, in our toolbox. We can have all the right things. And yet sometimes we don't know how to best use them. We might have all the best intentions, but we break down at the implementation. I have all the right resources, but I use it in the wrong way. It's something that we've experienced maybe with literal tools. Um, I've seen my kids try to hammer a nail with a screwdriver. It happens. But we also see this even beyond the tool world. We see it just with everyday experiences, responsibilities, relationships. We see it in the lives of two young men uh, right here. 
we sometimes use <laughs> the right resource in the wrong way. I hope what we just learned is that we've all been using trash cans incorrectly, right? <laughs> there is, in fact, a much better use for that resource sitting in many of our kitchens. And when Paul opens chapter 8 of Romans, he's essentially going to make this point, that God has given us incredible resources and tools to live out our salvation, and yet we have to be wise and discerning in how we use what God has provided. That in order to live out a righteous life, it requires our continual reliance upon the resources God has provided. Right, righteousness being simply, and we've talked about this repeatedly in Romans, Paul loves talking about righteousness, and this is simply being right, right? It's the rightness with God. It's, it's often used in the relational aspect. So we're, when God talks about, when Paul talks about this, this righteousness that comes through walking by the Spirit, this righteousness is essentially, it's this all-encompassing idea or term to describe a life that is right in the eyes of God. And what we see in Romans 8 is that this right living, this righteousness is only manifested, it is only produced through consistent, regular reliance on the Lord. We can't do it on our own. And so Paul's going to kind of move us in this direction in kind of three main strokes, kind of three broad areas. He's going to focus first on the model of Christ. He's going to show us how Jesus has, in fact, set the example for us to follow. He's going to address then the, the reality that there's still a pull of sin. The temptation, much as he addressed in chapter 7, sin doesn't just go away. And so there is still a desire to pursue what the flesh wants, what the sinful, cursed body of ours, what, what it desires. And yet, he concludes at the end of this passage with how the power of the Holy Spirit overcomes that wrongful desire. All right, so if you read with me in Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 1, Paul, again, he's coming out of this cry for help at the end of chapter 7, this admission that he needs salvation, he needs deliverance from this body of death, and he says in verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the life-giving spirit in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Right? This is a huge, powerful statement. This is why when you know, people were putting together scripture in English and thinking of how to, how to group it and clump it and giving it verse numbers and chapter numbers, there's a reason why there's a new chapter right here because this statement from Paul should rock our worlds. That there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When Paul uses this term of condemnation, the Greek term here describes a negative, basically like a judgment from on high, a verdict, and also a consequence. So it's not even just you are wrong, but it's you are wrong and therefore you receive, boom, this punishment. And so what Paul is saying is that for those that are in Christ Jesus... For those of us that have put our faith in him, remember, he talked about this in Romans 3 and 5 in particular. He says that we who have put our faith in Christ, we're no longer in Adam, right? We're no longer in the under the power of sin, the authority of sin, but instead we are in Christ. He says, for those of us that are in Christ by faith, we are now delivered from 
condemnation. The condemnation that you may remember he spoke a lot about in Romans chapter one, where the wrath of God is revealed against all of creation because all have sinned, because all have departed from God's intended design for our lives. He says, this is the best way to live, to follow my commands, to obey what I've taught you and to a T, to a person, all of humanity has rejected that, right? That's Paul's point in Romans 1, that the problem with humanity is not ignorance, that our ultimate problem is rebellion, that there is no excuse, that we all stand under the condemnation of, that comes through the sin in our lives. And yet, and yet, in Romans 3, remember, Paul makes that turn. He says, but yet, just as the condemnation and wrath of God is revealed, so too is the righteousness of God revealed in Christ. And so for those of us that are in Christ, we're delivered. We're delivered from that verdict. We're delivered from that penalty. And so when he talks about this law, the law of the life-giving spirit, the law of sin and death, again, the, the term here in Greek, it's, it's not just words on a page. He's not describing right here a, a written code or a plan of action, or a do's and don'ts. Literally, the term here is for law is more of a sense of a power or an authority. And so he says, we, the, the authority of the life-giving spirit in Christ, that authority has superseded, it has transcended, it has defeated the law, the authority or power of sin and death. And then Paul's gonna explain how this came about, right? Verse three, he says, for God achieved what the law could not do because it was weakened through the flesh. And by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and concerning sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. All right, so right here, Paul's is describing, this is how that deliverance was secured. This is how we find freedom from that condemnation. It's not by our work. It's not by our accomplishment. It's not because we're a cut above the rest. What does he say? He gives us three things that God did. He says, for God achieved what the law, and here he does seem to be shifting into speaking about the, the rules, the, the list of do's and don'ts, the Mosaic law, which again is, is good. It wasn't, it wasn't made obsolete, but Jesus says, I came to fulfill the law, not to remove it. And so what we see here is that God achieved what the law, the Mosaic law, could not do. And it's not that the law was flawed. Instead, what, what was the problem? Well, it was weakened through the flesh because of our sin, because of our rebellion. This is something we talked about a few weeks ago at the beginning of Romans chapter seven, where our relationship to the law has had to change because the Mosaic law could not provide the inward transformation necessary to actually live a righteous life. Right? The Mosaic law gave a lot of things of do this and don't do that. And those are good things. And it, it helped show ancient Israel how to live a life that's honoring to the Lord, that would set them apart, that would make them holy, set them apart for worship from the nations around them. Right? The law is good. And yet, because of our sin, because of our flesh, we are unable to keep it perfectly. Because even though the law gave us direction, even though the law... Could, could reveal sin and call it out, it could not, in fact, inspire or motivate us to follow it. And God wasn't surprised by this, right? This was always part of his plan. But here, Paul is revealing, says, yeah, so God has done what the law could never do, right? The law could never bring about that internal change. It's like if I told you, 
don't be angry. Just don't be jealous. Don't think about elephants. What are we doing now, right? We're angry about how jealous we are of elephants. Like that's what's happening in this room. I don't even have to know your heart to know that that's true. And the law did much of the same. God says, I'm now going to have to do something different. It's why he even promised to ancient Israel and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. He says, the day will come where I'm actually going to write my law on your heart. I'm actually gonna reach into the core of who you are. I'm gonna change. I'm gonna change who you are. I'm not just gonna give you this external direction. I'm gonna give you this internal transformation. God says, that day will come. And what Paul is revealing is that Jesus Christ has in fact brought about that change. God achieved what the law could not by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh, right? And this term is very important in the Greek. Paul's saying that even though Jesus came in the flesh, remember we talked about this a lot. Uh, This is when we studied John 1 uh, way earlier uh, this semester, that Jesus came in flesh. He was fully God and fully man. But Paul's saying he's not it's that that he it's not that he was looked kind of human, but he wasn't really. What he's saying is he was in the form of flesh, and yet he wasn't in fact sinful, right? He he wasn't carrying the curse of Adam. But he still came in the flesh, and it was for the purpose, it was for this this goal of sin, specifically defeating sin. And because he came, because he lived the perfect life that none of us could live because he died the death that we all deserved, because he rose on the third day, proving his power and authority over that past power, over that authority of sin and death that held us captive, because Jesus accomplished what we could never do on our own, he now offers to us freedom because he has fully condemned God. The wrath of God was poured out on sin. He that knew no sin became sin for our sake so that God's wrath would be satisfied in the death of Christ as he took on the sin of the world, as he took on my sin, as he took on your sin. And so that sin is condemned. That verdict has been passed. That penalty has been paid. And because God has done all of this, Paul gives us the the result, the purpose in verse four. This is all so that the righteous requirement of the law may be fulfilled in us. And who are us? Well, it's those of us who do not walk according to the flesh, but instead according to the spirit. Paul says all of this was done so that the righteous requirement, literally here, the Greek term, it's, 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 this, it's just righteousness. That's literally the term here. So it's, in other words, he's saying, so that real, true righteousness would be fulfilled, that it would be overflowing, that it would be filled to the top. All of God has accomplished. He, he sent his son. He, he, he condemned sin in the flesh. He achieved what the law could not, so that the righteousness of God, the rightness of our lives could be in fact fulfilled, that the law with those, those commands, that it would be fulfilled in us who don't walk according to our sinful flesh, but those of us who walk according to or towards the spirit. So this is a truth that we have to hold fast to. This is a truth that is necessary for understanding uh, the rest of this passage for sure. And really all of Romans, that Jesus has in fact secured 
our deliverance, that Jesus, in fact, has set our direction, that this is something that has occurred. This is, this is a work that is complete. Jesus on the cross says, it is finished. So we no longer work or strive for the acceptance of God. It is simply by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone that God adopts us into his family. That God says, you are now my beloved son and daughter. And then we are living out that salvation. We live out that incredible gift in our lives. And it is important. It's important for us to apply this incredible forgiveness to our lives. Jesus told his followers, you should forgive as you've been forgiven. You love your enemy. You pray for those who persecute you. We were reading James this spring. James says, you've got to put this faith into action. You've got to live out the salvation that God has given to you. But you're not working and living and, and achieving for the deliverance that Jesus has already secured. It's done. This is one of the reasons why I just, I love when we have celebration baptism Sundays here at Southwood. Because what it is, is an opportunity for us. And another one's coming up. I have a slide. Boom. It's coming up on December 10th. And if you've never been baptized as a believer, I would encourage you, let us know. You can go to our website and find information. Let's start the process of moving you towards taking part in this incredible display. What I love about it is that it's a display, it's a proclamation for our church body, for friends and family, that we have been in fact delivered that our direction has been set, it has been changed, that our hearts have been transformed. That's what it is. It's this beautiful proclamation of the fulfilled promise of God. And yet, even though we might know that we've been bought with a price, even though we might know, gosh, I, I've been set in this new life, in this new direction, I have freedom from sin, there is still a part of us that can feel in certain seasons, in certain situations, we can feel trapped. We might feel lost or aimless. Right? My, my family, my wife and I, we just got a, dog, a new dog a few months ago. And when we got this new dog, you know, there is, there's a process that you enter into of raising this new little animal. Right? I mean, she's not that little. She's a border collie, so she's, I don't know, 100 pounds. And so when we bring this dog into our home... What do we do? We begin this process of setting a new direction for her life, of telling her, you've been delivered, right? I sit her down, I pin her down, and I say, you've been bought with a price. <laughs> right? This is step one. You can find this all on my YouTube channel. It's, it's really great. Dogs with the pastor. Um, but I tell her, I say, you have been bought with a price. I said, therefore, now thou, thou shalt not bark at turtles in our backyard all the time. Thou shalt not go live with our neighbors. They did not purchase you. You do not belong to them. That's the sinful flesh leading you astray, right? But you begin this process of essentially saying, hey, not only do you belong here now, you belong with us and we wanna love you and we wanna care for you, but there's a new direction for your life. Jesus has secured this for us and yet we can still feel trapped by the sinful desires of our flesh, the temptation that comes that Paul describes in Romans 7. We can still feel lost and aimless. I think often because many times we make our plans we set our goals, we form our expectations, and they're not always met. And sometimes when that happens, we think, well, I guess God doesn't always do it. We think, you know, I, I, you know, I, I thought for sure that God wanted me to marry that person, and I thought for sure God wanted me to take that job. But when it falls apart, it's not that we then become reflective and, and think, well, 
Was I listening to the leading of the Lord? Is that actually the direction I should go? Is, does God actually have a better plan, a better purpose? Sometimes we just think, well, that's it. I'm lost. I've got nowhere to go. It happens. There's still sin. There's still struggle in our life. There's still frustration with where we're headed. And this is why I believe Paul opens with the example of Jesus Christ. It's why we need to, as followers of Christ, remember the model that he set. This is why we, we have a detailed account of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. At the beginning of Christ's ministry, he was baptized by his cousin, right? Cousin John, what's up, bro? And he gets dunked in the Jordan. He, he emerges from the water, and the Spirit of God descends from heaven, alights on Christ like a dove, and the Father speaks from heaven and says, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. From that point, Jesus want, he goes into a deserted, a desert region, into the wilderness, and he fasts for 40 days. This is all in preparation for the ministry he's about to undertake, the few years of ministry he's about to start. And at the end of those 40 days, Satan, the great enemy of God, appears to Jesus, and he offers to him these different temptations, these different tests. And what's significant for us, the reason that's in our scripture, is not just so that we can be like, whoa, look what Jesus did, because he's God. That account is given to us because if we read it closely, we recognize that Jesus, right from the start, he doesn't lay a hold of his divine power. He doesn't lay a hold of his rightful power. When Satan says, hey, you can just turn these, bread, these stones into bread, Jesus says, I'm not going to do that. Why? Because I'm not relying on my ability. He says, what I'm relying on right now is he quotes from scripture. So he's saying, I'm relying on the word of God. And remember, he does have the indwelling, he has the spirit of God with him. So he's relying on the spirit. And so as he's tested, as he's tempted in that wilderness, what it is, is it's a model for us to realize, okay, Jesus relied on the word of God and the spirit of God, and he resisted temptation. We have both of those resources. I have the word of God. I have the spirit of God. Therefore, I can walk in his footsteps. This is what Paul kind of gets at in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. It's not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. It's not from works so that no one has reason to boast. For we are God's workmanship, right? It's the beginning of chapter eight of Romans. We are the product of the work of God. And we've been created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand so that we may do them. We are saved by the work of God for the work of God. We see this in the life of Christ it's what we aspire to as followers of Christ. So we can remember, okay, Christ has set this model of a life that is well-lived, of a life that is righteous, that is right. Now, we will all fail to hit perfection as he did, but doesn't change the goal, doesn't change the target, doesn't change the model ahead of us. Paul says we have this model of Christ, and yet he's a realist and he acknowledges starting in verse five, that there is in fact a, a pull in, the, in a different direction, right? He says this, read with me in verse five. For those who live according to the flesh have their outlook shaped by the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit have their outlook shaped by the things of the spirit. Okay, so Paul's about to make this contrast between two types of people. He got to it at the end of, chapter, or at the end of verse four, and now he's gonna kind of elaborate on it. If you remember at the end of four, he says that this is something that applies to us, that righteous, the righteous requirement of the law can be fulfilled in those of us who walk according to the spirit, not according to the flesh. 
right? And what we're gonna see over the rest of this passage is that prepositions matter. And all my English majors are like, yes, <laughs> the truth comes out. Prepositions matter. There's two key prepositions that we're gonna see in the remainder of this passage. And this is the first one. This, what we translate as according to. It's literally this term that, that I mean, it can be translated according to or, or towards or along with, right? This is really important because Paul is saying that there are, there is this desire, there is this option that we could live according to or towards the flesh, which he's using a shorthand to describe the curse of sin in this world and in our lives. He says we could choose There are those who live towards that end. And what happens is as they live in that direction, their outlook begins to change. In the same way, those who live according to the spirit have their outlook shaped, their perspective. Really, this term here is incredibly broad. It's almost a worldview. Their worldview will be affected or shaped or determined by the things of the spirit. This is why in verse six, he says that the outlook of the flesh is death, but the outlook of the spirit is life and peace. Because the outlook of the flesh is hostile to God for it does not submit to the law of God, nor is it able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot ever, ever, ever please God. All right, prepositions matter. So right here, Paul is saying that there is an option for those to walk towards the flesh or to walk towards the spirit. And whereas the flesh is pointed towards death and hostility towards God, of lack of submission to the commands of God, that's just part of the flesh. That's its natural state. It is unable to submit to the Lord. It will always bring death and hostility between man and God. He says, and yet the outlook, the worldview, the direction of the spirit, it's life. It's peace. And then he hits this moment in verse eight and where he's gonna elaborate on nine through 11, that those who are in the flesh cannot please God, right? Prepositions matter. What we see here is Paul describing the fact that there is in fact, there are those who are in the flesh that have not put their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. This is what we talked about in a lot of the past chapters of Romans, that before we put our faith in Christ, that we are under, we are subject and slaves to sin and death. There is no other option for us. We're not neutral. We are in rebellion before Christ. But for those who are in Christ, we can now choose to live according to the spirit or as Paul said in the end of Romans seven, we could drift back towards that wrongful fleshly direction. And so Paul's distinguishing here and he's gonna start in verse nine talking about how we are now in the spirit. When he talks about in the flesh, it's an identity. He's saying these are those, the unregenerate, the unbelievers, they can never please God. He's not applying this to believers. He's saying those who are in the flesh, there's no hope of pleasing the Lord. But for those of us that are in Christ, that he's gonna describe in verse nine as in the spirit, our identity is, as I said, adopted sons and daughters. And yet even in that, we're not gonna be perfect. We're gonna make mistakes. We're gonna fail. We're gonna slip. We're gonna stumble. Just like my dog continues to bark at turtles. 
Every single one of us will have our slips. We have our stumbles. And yet our goal is still to chase after the things of the Spirit, to follow the leading of the Spirit, to resist the pull, the temptation of sin. And Paul kind of speaks to this. He's, he's pointing us in this direction that I've sort of distilled into the, the truth. This, this is how kind of our actions, how our lives, our relationships in particular operate. Okay, that we take actions that divert, that shape our attention, which shapes our affection, which continue to shape our actions. This is what I mean by that. Does every parent in the world have the cutest baby? Do they? I mean, statistically, no. Like that is, by definition, impossible. Not everyone can have the absolute cutest, most beautiful, most wonderful baby in the world. They can't. That's just, that's just stats, y'all. But does every parent believe that they have the best, cutest, most precious baby? Mostly, yes. Mostly. Why? Because as soon as knowledge comes that you're expecting a child, that dramatically changes. It shapes your actions. Suddenly you start living differently based on this life that is growing and, and generating and developing. You're eating different things. You're doing different things. You're going to classes. You're watching videos. And then you have this new way of life that shapes your attention. You're reading books. You're, you're listening to, you're asking other parents. You're, you're suddenly realizing that maybe your parents have things worth saying. Like you are, you're gathering all this information because your attention is focused on this young life. And so your affections are generating and to the point where as soon as that baby is born, even if that boy looks like a squished pumpkin, like you are already in love. And the affection for your child only increases. Why? Because the actions just keep coming. The attention keeps getting focused. The affection keeps getting developed. This is how we operate. This is how God has designed us. It's why we're told in scripture that even if I don't feel like obeying, I should. Why? Because as I take that action, it shifts my attention. And as my attention is focused on the right thing, as I set my mind on the things above, as I'm focused on my treasure in heaven, then my heart will in fact change. That God who works in me to, to the ability and, and brings about this work through me, he's also changing my affections and my desires. And it's not just my work, it's also my will. God really is reaching in and he's transforming the core of who I am. He's writing his law in my heart. And I can find over a lifetime as I grow in spiritual maturity that it's not just a discipline of following the Lord. It's not just an obligation. It truly is a desire to live in right relationship with him, to live out my salvation, to demonstrate the righteousness given to me by Christ. Paul says we have this opportunity to abandon God's leading and go back just as a dog returns to its vomit, a fool returns to his folly. We could go back to those worthless things or we can choose to walk in newness of life according to the spirit, which should make sense because as he's gonna say in verse nine, we are already in the spirit. Our identity has been changed, so why don't we live it out? And yet, the problem is that even with this truth, we feel ourselves frustrated, 
where we find ourselves disconnected from the leading of the Spirit, right? There's reasons that in Scripture we're warned to not, not, not callous ourselves against the Spirit, to not become hardened, to grieve the Spirit in our lives. We're told in Scripture that we should be filled with the Spirit, which seems to indicate that there is a way for me to live in which I am not being filled by the Spirit, where I am not, in fact, living according to His leading. And so the Lord says, or Paul is saying here in Romans 8, even when we maybe feel frustrated, because as I said, maybe, maybe our hopes and dreams didn't come about, and we get frustrated, we think, you know what, I tried to do the right thing, I tried to follow God's leading, but that person still hurt me. I tried to follow the Lord's commands, but you know what, that work thing just, it still fell apart. People still don't think, you know, there's still this maybe aggression, or there's still this strife that I'm facing, and we get frustrated with the Lord. We're saying, I thought, I thought this was going to work out the way I wanted it to. And it can make us frustrated and embittered, or it can make us disconnect. And we say, you know what? I'm just not even going to worry about it. I'm just going to kind of do my thing. And all of us have this temptation in different seasons and situations of life. When we hit major crises, these things show up. Man, you, you, you lose a loved one. You walk through significant financial just disaster health issues, relational issues. These enemies always are ready to rear their heads. Sin is crouching at our doorstep, waiting to devour. But what we're reminded of in scripture is we have been given the ability to fight the flesh. That we can put on the armor of God, that we can gird our loins and be ready to run, that we can in fact flee temptation. That even though we might think that this sin, that this burden is just unovercomeable. It's simply not true. We've, we've read this repeatedly in Romans, that the power of sin is in fact overcome by the power of the Lord, the salvation that Christ has given to us. Jesus speaks to his followers about this way back in John, where he tells them that the spirit is the one who in fact gives life, that human nature. Literally here, the term he uses is simply flesh. It says the spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh, your flesh, this body that's cursed, this body of death that's under, that, that's cursed by sin, no help. No help. But the words that I, Jesus, have spoken to you are spirit, are life. And this is why it is so significant, why Jesus promised his followers what Paul's going to describe. He promised his followers the gift of the Holy Spirit. This third person of our Trinity, God. God's spirit who comes and indwells, who lives with and guides and counsels every believer. Jesus says, it is better for you for me to leave in person because I'm going to send you the spirit of God. He's going to walk with you and he's going to empower you. This is what Paul talks about in verse 9 through 11. He says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but you are in the spirit. This is not new information. He said this repeatedly in the book of Romans. You're not in the flesh, you're not in Adam, you're not under sin, you're not under the authority of death, you are in the spirit. Your identity has changed. And if this is if indeed the spirit of God lives in you, which again, that is the promise of Christ to all who put their faith in him. The spirit who comes to live, to dwell, to, to, to serve as a down payment of our eternal inheritance as Paul describes in Ephesians. So, for those of us that have the Spirit of God in us, we are also in the Spirit. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, this person does not belong to him, right? So Paul, again, he's, he's saying, look, there are those who have not put their faith in Christ. They're not in him. 
their abilities are different. But if Christ is in you, verse 10, your body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is your life because of righteousness. He says, you still have not fully escaped the curse of sin in your life or in your world. This is why we long for the day that we read about in Revelation last fall when God will make all things new, when he will redeem all of creation, including our mortal bodies. There is a day coming when there we will experience the resurrection of the dead and those who have put their faith in Christ, we are raised to new life. God cares about our physical being. God created Adam and Eve as spiritual and also physical from the start in perfection. God cares about our physical form, but it's broken, right? When they sinned against God, that rebellion, it has breached, it has broken the relationship between us, other people, us and the world and us and the Lord. So Paul is admitting, he says, look, remember, your body is in fact still cursed because of sin. He says, but you now have the spirit and the spirit is life and doesn't lead towards death. He leads towards righteousness. And moreover, verse 11, if the spirit of the one who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, the one who raised Christ from the dead will also make your mortal bodies alive through his spirit who lives in you. This is where Paul's, he's kind of wrapping up this thought. He says, you have been given the spirit of power, not of fear and timidity. You've been given the spirit of God. And this is the same God who raised Jesus from the dead. Therefore, if God raised Jesus from the dead to defeat sin and death once and for all, he says, how much more can you trust that he will in fact use his spirit in your body to bring about life? Now, again, we're still waiting the perfect full redemption and glorification of our bodies, but there is a life that we can experience here and now because the spirit is with us, because the spirit's power, God's Holy Spirit, this person of the Trinity, he has defeated, he defeats sin's power in our lives. And sin is not completely removed on this side of heaven, but it is in fact defeated, it's overcome. We see this play out even just in our world, that certain laws maybe aren't removed, but they are in fact overcome. One of our teaching pastor, our senior pastor, Brian Fisher, over at our Anderson campus, he has this great illustration where he talks about how there was this time where he had to fly overseas, right? He was going like to Europe. He's like, okay, if I'm gonna go to Europe, I can't swim. I'm not strong enough to swim. Uh, I don't like boats. And so really my only option is I gotta fly. I gotta get on an airplane. Uh, I can't fly on my own, but I need to get in a plane. Why? Because I have to overcome gravity and distance. And so even though the law of gravity is there, right? The law of gravity happens. Like I can pick something up. Well, I'm not gonna drop this. Well, I can drop it. If I drop something, it will probably, yeah, okay. Still fell, right? That is a law. Gravity exists. My physics majors are like, yup, you know, that's great. But what do we do with an airplane? An airplane, it operates with a new law, the law of aerodynamics. Whoop, aerospace engineers, where you at, right? (laughs) And through aerodynamics, we can overcome the law of gravity. Again, gravity is not removed. It is not made obsolete. If I'm riding in that airplane, I open the door and I step out, I will go down into the Atlantic. And then all kinds of laws take over. Like that's, that's gonna happen. But 
through aerodynamics, I can overcome the law of gravity. The spirit of God is given to us and he can overcome and defeat sin's power. That law, that authority, that power, it is overcome by the power of the spirit. But in order for that to happen, I gotta stay in that plane, right? Sin is not gone. I can't lull myself into a false sense of security. As Peter told the early church, he says, man, Satan's, man, he's waiting. He's looking for opportunities. If I step out of that plane, I'm still falling into the ocean. And yet there's a part of us that wants to, we drift towards the self-reliance because it feels a little bit easier. Maybe it's a little bit quicker. It comes more naturally in our flesh. We're natural rebels. We're children of wrath. And so there's a part of me that wants to just, ah, I'm just gonna kind of try to do this thing in my own strength. And sometimes it's intentional. Many times it's not. But there's a part of us that just wants to, I'll do it. I saw this with my kids all growing up, every single one of them, when they were really little. It's just, can I help you with your shoes? I do it. Let me get that, let me get that orange juice cup for you. I do it, I do it. You know, like that's, that's just part of who we are. We're born that way. We want to be self-reliant. And yet what Paul is making the case for here, what we're told repeatedly in Scripture, is that we're not called to self-reliance and self-dependence. We are called towards spirit-reliance. We're called to spirit-dependence. We should follow the Spirit, live according to His leading. This is what Paul made the point in Galatia, to the church in Galatia. He says, I say, live by the Spirit, and you'll not carry out the desires of the flesh, right? That plane can overcome gravity. Live by the Spirit, because the flesh has desires that are opposed to the Spirit. It's trying to pull you down. And yet the spirit has desires that are opposed to the flesh for these are in opposition to one another so that you cannot do what you want. He's speaking kind of to that tension you present in Romans 7. And he goes on in Galatians 5 and talks about kind of the fruit, the result of sin, of the flesh. It's terrible things. But then he concludes that chapter speaking about the fruit, the result of the spirit, which some of us learned in song, that it's love and joy and peace and patience. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, right? This is what the Lord can manifest, can produce in our lives if we are relying on the tools that he's provided. So my question for us as we wrap up, right, before we sing our final song, before we, we, we declare the worthiness, the goodness, the glory of our God through worship, here's my question. What are we chasing? What are we seeking? What tools are we using? Do we desire to live a life that's righteous? Do we desire to live out the salvation that God has secured on our behalf? So as the band comes up, I want to give us sort of a really simple question, a really simple question to ask the Lord in prayer. Namely, Lord, where can I be relying on you this week? God, how can I follow your spirit? Is it by remembering the model of Christ, focusing on what he's done? Is it by fighting the flesh? I'd say the best way to do that, you, you build accountability. You shape action by accountability. And man, if you can get in there, shape those actions, then you can have results in your attention, in your affections? Or maybe is it, God, I need help focusing and following the leading of your spirit. How does that come about? Through spending time with the Lord, listening to him, reading his word, 
asking ourselves reflective questions of, God, where are you leading me? God, help me follow. Lord, produce in me this fruit of the Spirit, the love and the joy and the peace. God, I, I need you to produce this in my life. So this is the question we're going to ask the Lord in prayer as we prepare to worship. So if you would, let's go before the Lord. God, we, we are thankful that you have given us this, this guidance and direction in your word that points us not towards just self-improvement. God, it doesn't just point us towards uh, tips and tricks for a better, more productive life. But God, you have given us instruction for how to rely on you in every situation and season. So Lord, that's what we come to you with this morning. This is the request that we have. God, show us how are you leading us to follow you this week. So take this moment, take the next few moments and just confess to the Lord, say, God, this, you've brought to my mind, Lord, where I have strayed, God, where I'm relying maybe on myself or God, where maybe I'm I'm just giving over to the, the pull of temptation. God, maybe where I'm just forgetting that Christ has secured what I could never achieve. Confess that to the Lord, but then ask him, say, God, show me, how do I move forward? Lord, how do I follow your lead this week? Lord, by focusing on Christ, by fighting the flesh, or by following the spirit. Ask him for that direction right now.